one of the joys of, of talking with children as they're growing <clears throat> is um, just hearing them talk about how much they're growing and how, how tall they are or, <clears throat> or what sports they're doing or what hobbies they're taking up. But, but one of the things that I think as adults we always laugh at is when you have a conversation with a kid, a child, and, and you, you, know, you, you hear that they maybe have a birthday coming up or even if you don't know about it, you ask them about it. And you say, you know, how old are you? Well, I'm 11 and I'm about to be 12. Thank you. Soon to be 13. I'm 11, 12, soon to be 13. Right? I mean, my boys, like they try to act, they try to to get uh, props for the next age, like a month before their birthday. I'm like, no, you got a month to go before this gets here. But they're so excited to grow. They're so excited to be that next age. And before that age actually comes, they want to be treated as the next age, right? They want the, <clears throat> they want the privileges of what that age brings. Not always the responsibilities, and we know that. Wouldn't it be great if, if you and I in our walk with Jesus were just so excited to be growing and, and ready to move to the next stage of, of the privilege of being a child of God and, and growing in the responsibility of the faith that God has given us. And we say, oh, I'm at this stage in my walk with the world, but I'm soon to be here because I'm leaning into Jesus and I'm plugged into relationship and I can't wait to see what God is going to do in my life. That's the gist of the message that the Apostle Paul is talking about in, well, really in all of the epistles, all of these letters that he writes to churches that he's connected with. And in First Thessalonians 4, this series that we've been in, I know we've taken a break for a couple of weeks, but, but Paul, the Apostle Paul moves into uh, sort of an instructional or an ethical part of this letter from here to the end of the letter. Uh, he has spent over half this letter so far encouraging this growing, young, budding church. And he hits them pretty strongly right out of the gates with some pretty strong theology. He gives thanks to them. He brings God's grace and peace and he gives thanks to them for uh, publicly to God. Actually, he gives thanks to God for his work in them, for their work of faith, their labor of love and their steadfastness in the Lord Jesus. I know I already preached that sermon, but let me just say when you see someone that you know has been steadfast in the faith, thank God for them to them. I, I thank God. This is how we give, this is how we give God glorifying praise or affirmation to those people who are not God, right? We say, brother Joel, I am so thankful to God for his work in your life, right? We keep our focus heavenward, but we're connected horizontally in relationship with one another, he encourages them for turning from idols to serve the living God. He, he shared his love for them by sharing both the gospel and his lives. I'm not just here with the message. I'm here with my life. And I'm here to serve you and help you grow in Christ. He, he's shown that the priority of his life in Christ is to see them grow. He says, for this reason brothers because of our mutual longing to see one another in all our distresses and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith for now we live all of these things in the world all of these temptations but seeing you grow man that's life that's why i'm here 
That's what wakes me up in the morning. That's what gives me energy. That's what gives me passion is seeing God do this work in you. For now we live if you are standing firm in the Lord or fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I hope you hear Paul's passionate plea for these saints and that we would emulate that as we build relationship with one another. So then as he transitions into this ethical or instructional portion of the letter, uh, he focuses on, on, on three or four main things. He focuses on moral purity as, talks, as he talks about sexual ethics. He talks about love of the brothers and, and how... Uh, and how we need to, 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 to you know, he's, he's saying, I, I worked for a living so that I wasn't a burden to you. The Lord's return, he talks about. And then he talks about sound matters and conduct in the church. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning of chapter 4, but I'm only going to get through verse 2. So as we read and as you're watching the clock, I mean, I know you don't, I know you don't do that. <laughs> I mean, like if you just happen to accidentally like, uh. We're in verse 1b. <laughs> I'm only going to go through verse 2. Here we go. Read with me. Open your Bible or your Bible app. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but god who gives his holy spirit to you would you pray with me father we come before you even again in this brief time because we we need you Uh, we need you because we're tempted to defend the way that we make decisions and the way that we are living and where we feel guilty we tend to run away from you rather than run to you and so we ask for your help in that would you draw our hearts to you would you give us a, a renewed confidence in your love for us. You demonstrated your love for us by sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross as the propitiation of sin sacrifice for us. And you wouldn't do that if you didn't love us. And if you love us, it's good that we come to you with confidence where we will find mercy and grace. So direct our hearts to you, Lord. Make us increase and abound in love for you, for one another so that our hearts might be established blamelessly in holiness before you, our God and our Father. Because we know that Jesus is coming again. Father, we pray that you'd keep us in your will. We pray that you'd establish us in the faith so that your word can sound forth, can reverberate from this place, out from our hearts and out from our lives, so that we, as we actively wait for your glorious return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul's telling us that to glorify God, and, and if I were to ask you one of the reasons that you desire to, to live well, you might say it in different words, but you would say, you know, I want to glorify God. 
That's an amen to that. The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, One pastor many years ago kind of reworded that and said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We get to enjoy this relationship with God who is not a taskmaster, but a savior and an empowerer. And in order for us to glorify God, we need to enjoy seeking to please him more and more. To glorify God, you need to enjoy seeking to please him more and more. That's what he says right out of the gates in in verses 1 and 2 here. He uses this phrase, finally, brothers. It's like a demonstrative phrase, a way of saying, hey, listen up. Or it's not like... uh, you know, when pastors close and they say in closing and then in closing and then in closing, right? But he says, finally, brothers, he gets their attention. He's connecting what he's been talking about to what he's getting ready to say. He's getting ready to apply it in, in some ways that are very specific to them. So he's saying, hey, listen up. And he addresses them as brothers. Now, this word here is a word that can mean men or women or brothers or sisters. Now, now why would I say that? Um, I say it because Uh, Because the last thing we need in our culture is to muddy the waters of complementarity and distinction that God has made us uh, man and woman in his image, each with equal value and purpose in him, right? That message needs to be continually clear. But the point is that it applies to everybody. So he's writing to men, he's writing to brothers, but what he writes applies to, to everyone in the church, right? And so he says, you know, um, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Do you hear that impassioned plea? And he seats everything. He grounds it in Christ. We ask and urge. You ever ask your kids to wash the dishes? Somewhere in there that, you know, there's a time where they're sort of like, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Then there's a point where they go, oh, wait a minute. That's a question. I mean, they don't know it's a fake question. Hey, son, will you wash the dishes? No. Let me just clarify how the English language works and how this relationship works. Hey, son, will you wash the dishes? Why are you asking me if I don't have an answer? Like, well, that's a fair question, but we'll talk about that later. Right now, you're going to wash the dishes. We ask and urge... I come to you in Christian love, grounded in the authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle. Brothers and sisters, every time we ground what we're saying in the authority of God's word, we come with the authority of Christ. Now, there's a whole lot that can surround that. But when we come bringing God's word to say, this is what God's word says, when it's rightly understood, humbly delivered, we come with the authority of Christ. I'll never forget one of my my preaching classes. My professor said, when we preach, are we God's voice? Everybody's like, oh, I don't want to get this wrong. wrong." Are we speaking for God? And someone in the class said, when we're right and we say it rightly. It's like, well, that's a good answer. When we understand the scriptures right, when we communicate it accurately, and we do so with the right tone of voice, in other words, the tone of scripture, then yes, 
we're, we're conveying the voice of God because it's scriptural. In other words, we don't get to take what we think we want. I don't get to communicate to you what I think you need to do unless it's grounded in Christ and in God's completed canon of the Old and New Testament, rightly understood and delivered in humility. And that's what Paul is saying here. I ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus because you are in Christ. You're his and you have all of the power of heaven available to you in your relationship with Christ. That's the doctrine of our union with Christ or our union in Christ. As you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. In other words, we've already talked about this. We've already walked through this in the brief time that I had with you. But, but rather than demanding it, rather than being on a high horse, he comes to them with a plea and a strong exhortation. An exhortation is where you uh, encourage someone to take specific steps in a specific direction to accomplish a specific purpose. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. We came to you. I'm not demanding it of you as one who's trying to stand on my own authority, but I'm standing in Christ's authority, urging you to walk in the way that you know you need to do. He's urging them to continue on. That's important to see. Did you know, brother and sister, you can be walking in Christ. You can be doing well. You can be growing in Christ. And someone can still come alongside of you and say, you're doing so well. Keep going. Keep looking to Jesus. You're discouraged. But regain your perspective. Look to Jesus and keep pressing on. Someone brings you a, a loving correction as Paul did to the church in, first, in, in, in Corinthians. We see in 1 Corinthians 4. He corrects them pretty strongly. That's not this. This is an encouragement to keep on keeping on. Keep the main thing the main thing. And in part, what he may be doing is communicating and writing what he would have said to them if he didn't have to hurry away. You remember? There's, there's this mob that's come up against him. And so they whisk Paul out. We'll read about this in Acts 17. And so now Paul's putting on paper some things that he wasn't able to say or that he would have said if he was there with them in per person. And so it's, no, it's notable that he affirms their current behavior and practices. Now, God has wired us with different personalities. Some of you only see lack of achievement in your own life and in the lives of others. Maybe better said, some of you tend to verbalize that more than you verbalize the positive. It's important to recognize when God has worked something in someone's life that we affirm it. We're not trying to build them up. Sam Crabtree wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. I think we've got a copy of the welcomes or at the resource center. And that's, uh, I said this phrase earlier in the message, but I stole it from him. Like I'm happy to steal things all day long. And he says, God-centered affirmation of those who are not God. In other words, if I, if I encourage my brother Ethan here for how he's walking in Christ and how he's loving his wife, Am I puffing him up? No. I'm encouraging 
him in the work of God that I see in him and through him. And he can receive that and not have to wrestle with pride. Ah, do I say thank you? Well, yeah, it's okay to say thank you and praise God. I'm so thankful for God's faithfulness. Right? The Christian life is a walk. It's important to understand that. It's not a prayer and a leap. It's not a prayer of salvation, and then you hop over to easy. It's the first step of many steps that are often like trudging through mud. You ever gone on a walk on a beach and... You often try to walk as close to the water as you can because the, 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 the moisture in the sand supports you. Versus if you're walking in the thick sand 30 feet away or 75 feet away, it can be difficult to walk through that. You can get tired after a while. You, you forget about the sand running through your toes and all of these weird things that we talk about. And, and it's just like after a while, you're like, this is hard work walking through this. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It's a difficult walk at times. It's a walk that happens one step at a time or, or walking up and down a mountainside. I remember walking a, when I was in New Jersey, walking up a mountain called Mount Monadnock. And, uh, and our youth group would go out there to serve at a camp. And then we would, uh, part, of the, part of our trip was going up Mount Monadnock. Now, it's only 3,200 feet. So, I mean, there are bigger mountains in the world, I realize that. But it's still a decent walk. It's still a decent clip. And so you get up to the top and you're tired and, and, and you're tempted to think something along the lines of, well, going down is going to be easy, right? And it is, you know, like if you just stopped and rolled down the whole thing and ended up in the hospital, I mean, you could get down pretty quickly, That's not how it goes. We walk. And so now gravity is working for you and against you, right? You're using muscles in your legs. Like the first, you know, 2,000 feet may not be a big deal, but that last 1,000 feet, 500 feet of the walk, it's not even that steep anymore because it kind of levels out and you start to walk towards, and you're like, your legs are shaking and you didn't even know you had these muscles there. You don't reach a point in your Christian walk When you think, okay, now it's just downhill from here. Now it's easy. No. Brothers and sisters, we need to gear up so that we go to heaven tired. We go to heaven with our boots strapped up. Whatever that might look like, if you're not physically able to do certain things now, your Christian life is not over. You keep on keeping on and you keep on in prayer and you bolster the church with prayer. You encourage one another until the Lord Jesus takes you home and you relax forever. And you praise forever. You have no physical infirmities. No struggle against sin. And you see Jesus. Who lights up everything. No sun. Because we're in the sun. This is what we should expect of the Christian walk, friends. We're not living for the now. We're living for eternity. And so we we set our sights. We get out our biblical compass and the word of God. And we help one another navigate the way. 
if you're not in a relationship with someone helping you navigating the way, I would ask and urge you to consider your heart and why. Why is that? Not to shame you, not to lay a weight on you. No. Because if you believe, and that's genuine, then you're redeemed. Praise God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, some people will get to heaven as though just by fire, like a little singed. If I can say it that way, it's probably not very theologically accurate. But friend, don't you want to enjoy the difficult yet joyous walk of relationship with others? Like, no, I don't really like people. Well, okay, but, but, but God likes you and loves you and made you to be in relationship with other people. And that looks different. I understand that. But I would ask and urge you to consider why are you resistant to biblical community? And I mean, when I say biblical community, I don't just mean uh, friends with other Christians. I mean, community where we're opening up the word together. We're, we're working on how do we apply this sermon? You know, Carla said, I kind of bristled a little bit at, at, at Miss Baumgartner's part in the video there. You know, she said, but she's right. She's not wrong about it. You know, she said, you hear the sermon on Sunday morning and, and you, you, you don't get all of it right on Sunday morning. You know, you kind of get this 30,000 fly, I'm paraphrasing, but you kind of get this 30,000 uh, foot flyover, right? And so the pastor and me is like, come on guys, we can work at this together. But at the end of the day, we need one another to help each other apply it to our lives because we need one another to help us see the blind spots that we don't see. We need one another. Well, we need to be that person in others' lives to help them see the blind spots that they're not able to see. We need to walk alongside of one another, helping one another, not just trying to fill our heads with knowledge without application because that just puffs up, Paul says. And so we walk. We walk and you can make it. You might not think you can make it, but you can make it. That's why Paul says, keep on. You ought to walk and you received from us how you ought to walk to please God just as you are doing and that you also do so more and more. Friends, that's not the perspective of one who's saying you're never good enough. You're not doing well enough. No, He's saying, you're doing well. Now take the next step. It's time to go from Christian kindergarten to Christian first grade. And from first grade in God's school to second grade and fifth grade and seventh grade and high school and whatever else, whatever further education the Lord has for you in his school, keep pressing forward. Some of you are in in higher grades, if you will, higher schools of learning than I have ever had to deal with in my life. And part of my personality just wants to come alongside and sort of uh, hold your hand. I don't mean this in a mocking way, like patting your hand in a mock. Please don't hear that. But what I mean, I just want to come alongside and bring comfort. But we also need to bring comfort and say, "You're, you're doing well in Christ. What's your next step? Let's go together or find someone that can walk this path with you. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, keep going more and more. 
So you can walk. You can make it. Why? Well, Paul said in Philippians 2.13, because God is working in you to will and work. Why? For his good pleasure. We know that we wouldn't draw up the homework lessons like this on our own. I would never never think, you know, I really want that trial. Like, sign me up. You know, there's not, not a sheet like this in, in the back that says, hey, sign up for your daily trial today. And you've got like nine options. No, you wake up and you get the phone call. You hear the screech and the crash and the sirens. The tears. The moaning. The painful cry that runs through your bones. And you say, okay, this is my trial. And there's a temptation in each of these. There's a temptation to, to, to avoid what the Apostle Paul says, how we do this. I say to you, Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Did you hear that? Oh, I, I can't make it through this. Yes, you can. I can't walk away from this sin. Yes, you can. How? Walk in the Spirit. The Christian life is a walk. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. One of the challenges of those who have the spiritual gift of encouragement coming alongside of others is to stop at encouragement rather than move to exhortation. Right? Now there's a sensitive, it's like a, a science and an art, a lot of art. Because you don't go up to someone and say, oh, I'm sorry, you, your world just fell apart. What's next in your walk with Christ? Too soon. But as you sit, often without words, and you just listen, or you hold someone's hand, or you pray with them, or you cry with them, all of the above, there is an appropriate time, and there's a grace-filled time to say, how can I help you move forward in Christ? How can we walk through this together with the Spirit? Therefore, Paul said, Colossians 2, 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. I have a friend that I text with almost every Sunday morning. Uh, he is more faithful than I am, and he texts me. Uh, lives in Cedar Rapids here, and he usually initiates and he says, uh, Hey, brother, I'm praying for you as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus this morning. I said, thank you. We usually text a couple times back and forth. It's usually around, I don't know, 5 a.m. And we'll exchange some prayer requests. And I know he's prayed for me and I stop and I pray for him. Well, this morning he asked for prayer for a bike ride he's doing in September to raise funds for pediatric cancer research. And he says, I, I'm, I'm riding. I know I can, I can do it, but it's further than what I'm used to in this amount of time. 
So would you pray that God would enable me and help me to accomplish this goal? Because I have people who've pledged and I really want to do this. This is a good God-glorifying goal that he has. He's got a vision so that when, when his, his thighs are, are, are trembling from being tired or, or his body is physically tired or he's thirsty, he's going to pedal one more time because he's got a vision. Because his, his sights are set on a good goal to see the gift of, of medicinal treatment be able to help children with cancer. What a good goal. And so he's going to press on and he's going to make it by God's grace. And that's a phrase. Did you hear that phrase? By God's grace. You need to adopt this phrase. I'm usually a little slower to say, you need to do this, but I'm going to say it. You do. You need to adopt this phrase because what tends to happen is we get into these seasons and we think about what it means to press on and we just think, I got I to go do this. But if you say, if you get in the pattern, this old pattern of saying, by God's grace, I'll see you tomorrow. Because by God's grace, your heart's beating right now. By God's grace, your blood's flowing right now. By God's grace, you have the strength to get up and work, to earn a living. By God's grace, you have the spirit inside of you indwelling you to be able to love others with the grace which he supplies. By God's grace, you learn that you have everything that you need for life and godliness according to his power, by the riches of his divine mercy. And so in Ephesians, when Paul is talking about standing firm, he's saying stand firm in the strength of the Lord not in your own strength, not according to your own muscle, not according to your own willpower. So by God's grace, we're going to make it through today. By God's grace, his unmerited favor, by God's grace, his unearned kindness toward us in Jesus Christ, we are able to walk. And in Christ, you have all that you need. But There is an inextricable relationship between the active working of God's power for those who believe, for your progressive sanctification, your your day by day or your moment by moment being set apart to the Lord. That's progressive sanctification until the day we go to heaven. There's a relationship between God's active power working for you and your employing effort to please him. Not for his approval or salvation, ever. But because you love him. Because you want to please him. You wake up in the morning, you say, there's a whole lot in life I can't make sense of right now, but I want to please Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, so we make it our aim, whether we're at home or away, to please him, to please Christ. Not as a taskmaster who's never happy, but we get up and we go, he saved me, he made me, he redeemed me, and I get to live for him. Lord, I wish I got to live for you in a different way today. But I want to please you. I, I want to please you. So by God's grace, would you enable me to have the wisdom that I need so that I don't live the alternative way in a way that's displeasing to God, which Paul addresses in chapter 2, verse 15, talking about those who are, uh, who are not of the Lord, who live in a way that's displeasing him as a hindrance to the gospel going forward. It's possible 
It's possible to be a Christian and be a hindrance to the gospel going forward. Let's not live in a way that's displeasing to the Lord, but set our sights on pleasing him in every way. Say it with me. By God's grace. Say it again. By God's grace. Remember, friends, that aiming to please him is it's a guidance principle. It's a guidance principle. It's joyous. How can you know if you're a Christian if your aim is not to please him? It's a flexible principle. It saves us from this trap of religious legalism. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Galatians 5 1 says. Stand, therefore, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We, we, we don't, we don't want to live a, a legalistic life, but as I've said before, helping one another keep on keeping on and go after holiness is not legalism, friends. It's the life of the Christian faith. When I start making things up that aren't in the word or holding you to a standard that I don't hold my standard to, I'm either at best inconsistent, at worst a hypocrite, but even still, that's not legalism. Legalism would be adding something or a, 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 a demand that is not in the word of God or removing something from the word of God, which would lead us to licentious living, living with a license. You know, Jesus paid it all. Well, if you don't finish that, it's bad theology. The song is not bad theology, but if we live with partial phrases, partial verses, we end up developing bad theology. He teaches the Corinthian church in verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we've already talked about this. I've given you these instructions. So now, friends, brothers, sisters, set your sights on Jesus and live to please him. Live to please him in every way. First Corinthians 4, 6, he says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor uh, of one, an- one against another. Somebody said this to me this way. When you ask the question about, am I living to please God? It's a Christian waltz. Now, uh, ignore the arrows on the outside circle on this, because that actually contradicts what I'm getting ready to say. But I, I just, I'm using it anyway. <clears throat> it's my bad graphic, by the way. We live between this, this waltz. This is the Christian life. We, we do this three-step of believing the gospel, that Jesus paid everything for me, and so by faith in him and him alone, I don't have to show up to perform for his approval or earn my salvation. In fact, I can't. That's no gospel at all. It's contrary to the gospel, and anyone should be condemned who preaches a gospel like that. Paul says it of himself. I mentioned it last week. If I or anybody else preach a gospel contrary to this one, that we are saved by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone and the power of his resurrection, he should be accursed. Anybody believe the true gospel and then fight for righteousness as you seek to please him. And when you fail and you will, everybody say, I will fail. I will fail. When you fail, when you sin, repent. Repentance is joyous or it's supposed to be joyous. 
Say, oh God, I want to please you and I blew it. I'm so sorry. Thank you that you've paid the price, the penalty for that sin. There's not one drop of wrath that remains for me. Not a drop. Because Jesus took every drop. But it's not always a cycle. You see, sometimes we go between believing and fighting and believing and fighting. And when we do that, we end up in one, in one error of legalism. If we, if we move between fighting and repenting and fighting and repenting, we end up with this behavioristic view on things. And if we go between repent, believe, repent, believe, repent, believe, we end up with this uh, licentious living. So we want to avoid that and we want to just dance between all three. I, it'd be cool if I could like actually do it while I was telling you about this, but I can't, so... But it's just a way of saying, you know what? I need to believe, fight, repent. Believe, repent, and fight. And fight, believe, repent. Every day, whatever the challenge, whatever the fear, whatever the discouragement, and in so doing, we say, by God's grace, I want to seek to please you, Lord. God, I want to please you. God, I want to please you. To glorify God, you need enjoy seeking to please Him. How about you? Do you have this faith of a child that says, I'm 11, going on 12, soon to be 13? I'm a Christian. I've got the basics of the faith, but, but I can't wait to learn a little bit more so that one day I can lead someone else. Oh, I'm leading someone else and I enjoy this one-on-one relationship, but I can't wait to learn how to teach the word a little bit more clearly. Maybe one day I'll teach a group. Do you see? I'm 11 going on 12, soon to be 13. We see Jesus' model for this as he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is why we remind ourselves each and every Sunday at the Lord's table that Jesus gave his body to be broken and his blood to be poured out because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus shed his blood for us. We remind ourselves of this every day that Jesus sought to please the Father. It's why he carved out time to be with the Father. It's why he sought to, it's why he, he matured and he grew and he was made complete through his suffering. He lacked nothing, but he had to grow up. He had to demonstrate faithfulness, sinlessness, by not sinning in any way or not failing to do something, everything that the Father had set for him to do. 